Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This week we'll be considering, um, as we did last week, the Last Supper. And so we will be reading Matthew 26, verses 19 down through 28. These are the words of God's. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come to you, and we come to hear your word. We desire to hear your word. We desire to be fed. We desire to be encouraged. We desire to learn of you. We desire to learn the deep things. We desire, O oh Lord God, to have your thoughts become our thoughts and your ways become our ways. And so we ask you to accomplish all of this now by the Holy Spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the Last Supper, as we saw last week, the disciples are celebrating Passover in accordance with God's command from Exodus and in accordance with centuries of Jewish tradition. And last week we looked at the beginning and the end of this passage. We looked at verses 17 through 20 and 26 through 30, in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And in so doing, he draws all the meaning of the Passover upon himself, specifically in his upcoming offering of his body and his blood on the cross for the remission of sins. This week, we want to look at the middle portion of this passage, verses 21 through 25, in which Jesus announces that one of the twelve will betray him, that's verse 21, and then he goes on to signal to Judas that Jesus knows it is him. We see that in verse 25. Now the first thing I want us to notice is the significance of verses 21 through 25. It's easy for us to jump over them as they're kind of a, a, just a little distraction between the really important parts of this passage dealing with Passover and then the Lord's Supper. But I want us to see that these are critically important verses. Matthew doesn't want us to jump over these verses. Notice that Matthew gives equal billing to Judas's betrayal and the Lord's Supper. He gives equal billing to Jesus' announcement that one of the twelve is going to betray him and Jesus' affirmation to Judas that he knows it's him. He gives equal billing to that with Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. Notice verse 21 and 25. 
they both begin with the words, as they were eating, as they were eating. And it's the same phrase in the Greek. So Matthew is signaling by those two phrases that they are two very significant things which occur during the Last Supper. First, Jesus announces that one of them will betray him and confirms to Judas that Jesus knows it's him. Second, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Matthew, structurally, the way he sets up the passage, gives equal billing to these two things. So let me ask you this. Would you say that the Lord's Supper is significant? Would you say that the Lord's Supper involves profound realities? Would you say that it is impossible for us to plumb the depths of the Lord's Supper and its meaning? But would you say that it's, impo that it's important for us to try to plumb those depths? Would you say that God intends through our meditation on the Lord's Supper to deepen us and enrich us as disciples? Well, of course, the answer to all those questions is yes. But you have to say the same thing about the betrayal passage, verses 21 through 25, because Matthew gives it equal billing. That's Matthew's way of telling us that what is going on with Jesus and Judas, and Judas' betrayal involves profound realities, impossible for us to plumb, but important for us to try. For by so doing, in a prayerful and biblical way, God will deepen us and enrich us as Christians. Well, one of the profound realities that's very prominently featured in this passage is God's sovereignty and man's freedom and accountability. And what we're going to see is that the passage and the scriptures tell us two very uh, equally true things regarding Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. Number one, what Judas does in betraying the Lord Jesus and securing his own damnation is decreed by God. Two, what Judas does in betraying Jesus is according to is freely chosen by Judas, is freely chosen by Judas, and therefore he is fully accountable. Let's notice, first of all, that this text tells us, as does the Bible as a whole, that what is going on here with Jesus and Judas is according to what God in the scriptures has ordained will happen. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him. What Jesus is saying, what is happening to me, what is about to happen to me, my betrayal, my trial, my frame-up job that's going to happen to me, my scourging, my crucifixion, my death, my burial, my resurrection, everything is according to the plan of God as set forth in the Scriptures. And Jesus has told the disciples this before. In Matthew chapter 17, he said to them, the, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. In Matthew chapter 20, he told them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. This is all set out by God 
in the scriptures. It's all by the sovereignty of God. Jesus has already told them before, he's going to be betrayed. That's what God has ordained regarding his only begotten son. Now, for his only begotten son to be betrayed, there must be a betrayer. And what we see is that what has been ordained uh, for the Son of God, the actions of the betrayer have been equally ordained. We see that in John chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus, on this same night, the same night of the Last Supper, same night of his arrest, it records his uh, prayer to the Father. And in that prayer, Jesus says this to the Father, None of the disciples is lost. None of the disciples is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In Acts chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, speaking uh, to uh, the Jewish men on the day of Pentecost, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, or rather here he's speaking to the disciples because they have to replace Judas, they had to replace him in his office. He says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then Peter goes on to quote Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And in those Psalms, it speaks of David being betrayed by a brother, by a fellow Israelite. And we know from the New Testament that those events were typological events. They were real historical events, but they were typologically pointing forward to what would happen to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. So both Jesus' crucifixion and Judas' betrayal of Jesus to bring about his crucifixion are according to God's sovereign plan as indicated in Scripture. Peter sums all of this up in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Praying to God, Peter says, Truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Okay? Everybody has come together against Jesus. All these people have come together against Jesus. He says they were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In other words, what will happen with Jesus and Judas, as well as Herod and Pilate, and the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, is according to the sovereign decree of God, who, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, works all things according to the counsel of His own will. So this is not a matter of God looking ahead, down through the corridors of time, and seeing what is going to happen, and then decreeing it, meaninglessly. Peter says everyone involved in Jesus' arrest and crucifixion did what God's hand and purpose determined before to be done. So the exhaustive sovereignty of God is clearly enunciated by Jesus in our text, and we will see God's sovereign plan unfold in detail as we move forward in Matthew to Jesus' arrest, his trial, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And we see, in a very chilling way, that the exhaustive sovereignty of God also extends to personal salvation and personal damnation. In verse 24, Jesus says, Woe to that man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Those are the words of eternal damnation. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It would have been better for him to have not been born. More chilling words have never been spoken. And Jesus here means it literally. So we have the sovereignty of God and the accountability of man on display, not only with regard to events, but also with regard to Judas's personal damnation. Remember what Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in John chapter 17, none of the disciples is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, these are not comfortable themes. We have a hard time thinking about these kind of themes at all. And we certainly have a hard time thinking about them in a deep and biblical way. But Matthew wants us to think about them. He wants us to think about them deeply and biblically. And that's why he features this passage so significantly and prominently and gives it equal billing with Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. So let's begin this process of thinking deeply and biblically about these things. The first thing we need to uh, notice is that Christians, as Christians, that's us, old evangelical church, we tend to be schizophrenic when it comes to the topic of God's sovereignty. We tend to be schizophrenic when it comes to the topic of God's sovereignty. On the one hand, we all know it's true. And we know that it's precious. On the one hand, we all know it's true and we all know it's precious. Let me give you two situations in which every Christian knows that God's sovereignty is true and a precious truth. We know God's sovereignty is true and we know it's precious when it comes to God's promises. And, uh, and uh, I would simply point out this promise, Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God. Okay? That promise is a precious promise. Every Christian I've ever met loves to cling to it. That promise cannot be true unless God is sovereign over every detail of our lives. If you believe that promise, you believe that God is sovereign over every detail of your life. And let me ask you this, is that promise precious to you? Is that a happy truth or an unhappy truth? God works all things together for good to those who love God. Is that a happy truth or an unhappy truth? That is a happy truth. Do you cling to that truth? Do you remind yourself of it often? Do you remind other Christians of it often when they're going through hard circumstances? Of course you do. That means God's exhaustive sovereignty is precious to you. It is a happy truth that you love to cling to. Second, we know God's sovereignty is true, and we know it is precious when it comes to our prayers. Let me ask you this. Do you pray to a God of good intentions who is too weak to do anything about them? Is that your God? Is that the God you pray to? Or do you pray to a God who can soften the hardest heart, reverse the bleakest situation, change the mind of the wickedest ruler while having them think it's their idea. Is that the God you pray to? Well, I know the answer to that. That's the God you pray to because you wouldn't bother praying to a God of 
good intentions who is too weak to do anything about them. So, if this is the God you pray to, then you believe in the exhaustive sovereignty of God and it's precious to you. Okay then. We have established that we believe in the sovereignty of God and we've established that it's precious to us. So then what is the problem when it comes to the sovereignty of God? The problem comes in when we try to explain how God is sovereign and yet man is free. That's when the problem comes in. Not with the promises of God, not with our prayers to God, but when we start trying to explain how it works that God is sovereign and man is free. Because it seems to us, it seems self-evident to us, that God's sovereignty and man's freedom are enemies. It seems evident to us that they contradict one another. It seems to us that God can be sovereign or man can be free, but not both. Now, we are making two mistakes when we think that way. The first mistake is in assuming, is in assuming that God's sovereignty and man's freedom fight one another. We take that for granted. We take that as our starting point, and that's when all the problems come in. And that is the problem. It's our assumption that's the problem. To assume that God's sovereignty and man's freedom fight one another is to misstate the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is not how can man be free if God is sovereign. The ultimate issue is how can man be free at all. That's the issue. How can man be free at all? Think about it. In order precisely to establish the freedom and the independence of man, modern man has posed a self-existent material universe with no God in it precisely to free man. But we need to ask the question, here's the question we need to start with, is man free in a self-existent material universe? No, he is not. For one of the logical conclusions of a self-existent material universe is an absolute material determinism. If everything proceeds from matter and chance, atoms in random motion, then that is necessarily what everything is, and there's no way to avoid that. If everything is atoms in motion, then everything is atoms in motion. Your thoughts are atoms in motion. Your feelings are atoms in motion. Your sense perceptions are atoms in motion. Your ideas of truth and falsity are atoms in motion. Your ideas of right and wrong are just atoms in motion. And your decisions are just atoms in motion. The late Princeton philosopher Richard Rorty said that the very notion of objective truth is undarwinian. The very notion of objective truth is undarwinian. In other words, if you grant the universe that Darwin poses, which is a self-existent material universe, then there is no such thing as objective truth. He went on to say that all of our knowledge, all of our knowledge and beliefs are as much products of chance as are tectonic plates and mutated viruses. He said the whole idea of objective truth 
is left over from the belief that there is a God who created the world and who has written his own language into the world. Now see, he's consistent. He understands the logical conclusion of a self-existent material universe and he understands there is no way of avoiding it and at least Rorty had the honesty and the courage to just say it. All of this is why Harvard psychiatrist B.F. Skinner wrote in his famous book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, that all of our traditional concepts of man's freedom and dignity are unjustified and passé, and we need to get rid of them. He understood what Rorty was saying. That's our starting point. There is no hope for any freedom or any dignity at all apart from God. So whenever you get in a conversation and somebody is bringing up the uh, quandary of, well, how can man be free if God is sovereign, take them to the real starting point. We'll say, well, no, let's, let's take your world. Let's start there and let's see how free man is. Let's start with a self-existent material universe. That's where you start. And the one thing we have to conclude is that there is absolutely no freedom. You have nothing but an absolute determinism. There is no hope for freedom at all apart from God. And that brings us to the second mistake we make when we think about the sovereignty of God. And that is this, assuming that we can understand and explain fully how God is sovereign and man is free. That's our second mistake, assuming that we can fully understand and explain how, how it works, that God is sovereign and man is free. Now, Scripture on this point, like it is on all the major points of the faith, whether you're talking about the divine and human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're talking about the incarnation, whether you're talking about the oneness and the threeness of the eternal God, the Trinity, uh, whether you're, any of those things that you're talking about, Scripture is very clear in what it teaches. Scripture teaches us from cover to cover that God is exhaustively sovereign and man is free, and because he is free, he is accountable. It's very simple what Scripture teaches. It's very clear what Scripture teaches. God is one in three. Jesus is God and man. And God is exhaustively sovereign and man is free and accountable. The problem comes in when we assume that we can or ought or to be able to explain how that works. We are uncomfortable that there is a major Bible truth that we cannot fully explain. But again, let me ask you this. What major Bible truth can we fully explain? Can we fully explain how God is one in three? or how Jesus is fully God and fully man, or how in the incarnation the Creator God entered into the creation without ceasing to be the Creator God? Can we explain how Jesus could not sin and yet could be tempted? Can we explain how it was impossible for death to hold Jesus and yet He could be subject to it? With each of those and many, many other Bible truths, the Bible is simple and very clear in what it teaches, and yet we cannot explain how they work. Indeed, the most important parts of the Christian faith are the ones we can explain the least. 
the most important parts of the Christian faith are the ones we can explain the least. But that should not make us shy away or apologize for those truths. We need to take a lesson from the early Christians. The earliest Christians did not shy away from these mysteries of the Trinity or the divinity or humanity of Christ, the Incarnation, all of those kind of things. They did not shy away from them, but they made them the bedrock of the early church creeds. In those creeds, the church sought not so much to explain these truths as to protect them. And the early Christian heresies were precisely denials of these mysteries through attempts to make them make sense. The early Christian heresies were denials of these mysteries through attempts to make them make sense to the human mind. So the Bible is very clear that God is exhaustively sovereign, working all things according to the counsel of His own will, and yet that man is free making his own decisions for his own reasons, and because of that, man is accountable to God. Can we explain how that works? No. But we know that it works. And we know that Scripture, while it does not give us explanations of how it works, which we couldn't understand anyway, it does give us examples of how it works. And one of the clearest examples in all of Scripture is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the events leading up to it. We see a whole host of characters, each making their own decisions for their own reasons, and we see Satan operating in the background to influence things for his own reasons, and yet we see them all freely choosing to do exactly what God has determined before will be done. And we see that based on the evil intent of all these characters, this was the wickedest act of human history and they were all accountable. Peter would tell them on the, on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus you took by wicked hands and crucified. That's the language of accountability. Jesus says to the disciples and to Judas, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That's the language of accountability. So based on the evil intent of all these characters, this was the wickedest, wickedest act of human history. But we also see that based on the good and loving intentions of God, this was the most virtuous act of human history. The wickedest act of human history was also the best and most virtuous act of human history. As Joseph told his brothers who had betrayed him and sold him into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good in order to save many people. But it did not change the evil of what his brothers intended or their accountability. But the evil that his brothers intended did not change the good that God intended and brought to pass sovereignly. Now, if God is that sovereign and man that free and responsible with regard to what is at once the wickedest and the most virtuous act of human history, then how sovereign is God and how free and responsible is man everywhere else? Let's look at how God's sovereignty and man's freedom play out in our text here in Matthew 26 with regard to Judas. We've already seen that Judas's betrayal is according to the sovereignty of God and is set forth in scriptures ahead of time. But we also have Judas's personal choice and responsibility on display here. Think about this. 
Judas, there's only, you, you, you've only got 13 people in this room at the Last Supper. You've got Jesus and you've got the 12th. Judas is one of the ones Jesus is talking to when he says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That, we can say, is somewhat to the benefit of the other disciples. It's a theology lesson to them. No doubt they will remember it. But the main beneficiary of these words is Judas. Jesus is preaching to Judas. Jesus is providing Judas an opportunity to repent. When Judas asks, Rabbi, is it I? He's turning away from that opportunity to repent. When he asks, is it I? He's doubling down. He's putting on a ruse for all the other disciples ask, is it I? If Judas is the only one who doesn't ask, he will give himself away in front of everyone. So he asks insincerely, for he knows it's him. And he passes on this very personal opportunity to repent. Then Jesus gives Judas another opportunity to repent. When Judas says, uh, asks, is it I? Jesus answers, you have said it. Which is a cryptic way for Jesus to say yes without the other disciples knowing. But it lets Judas know that Jesus knows. And that is another opportunity to repent, which Judas does not take. John's Gospel adds that Jesus also dips a piece of bread and then hands it to Judas. And, it's a, and John says, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. Now, for the head of the table to dip a piece of bread and then hand it to a guest was a very unusual thing. It was a very special gesture. It would have been taken by everyone present as a token of honor. This was a very personal gesture from Jesus to Judas. It is another very, very personal opportunity for Judas to repent, which Judas does not take. John goes on to say that after the piece of bread, Satan entered into Judas, and Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. Now, Satan entering Judas does not mean that Judas was possessed and his will was overborne by Satan. What it means is that Satan was influencing Judas to betray Jesus, and Judas was embracing the idea as his own. Luke records that Satan had already entered Judas back when he first approached the chief priests and scribes about betraying Jesus. This doesn't mean that Judas isn't doing his own thinking and making his own decisions for his own reasons. It does mean Satan wants to influence Judas, and it does mean that Judas's thinking and decisions are lining up not only with what Judas wants, but also with what Satan wants. And because Judas's fundamental controlling desires are the same as Satan's, that makes Judas easy for Satan to manipulate to do this or that particular thing. He doesn't need to overbear Judas's will in the least. All he needs to do is to point out an avenue or an opportunity. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks to Timothy about witnessing to unbelievers. And he tells them that he, you have to, in, uh, in gentleness and humility, correct those in opposition. Because he says, here's the situation with unbelievers. When you're witnessing, you're hoping that God is going to grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now, that does not mean that they don't have a will. Notice what he says, that God will grant them repentance. That means the unbeliever has their own decisions and their own thoughts and their own will to repent of. That means they're accountable. That means they're free. But at the same time, they're taken captive by Satan. Because the fundamental desires, the fundamental, the lust, the envy, the resentfulness, the selfish ambition, the pride, the self-exaltation, the violence, the murder that they feel toward other people, all of that syncs up perfectly with what drives Satan. The antipathy toward God, not wanting God in their life, not want God telling them what to do, feeling like they know more about their own happiness than God does. All of those things line up perfectly with Satan, which makes unbelievers extremely easy for Satan to manipulate. So Judas is accomplishing his own will. He is also accomplishing Satan's will, whether Judas knows it or not. And Judas, as we see, turned away from two very personal appeals from Jesus and opportunities to repent. He decides again and again to harden himself against these appeals and to maintain his intent to betray Jesus to the ruler so they can arrest him. Even when he knows with Jesus looking at him that Jesus knows what he is doing. And Judas will put a cherry on top of all of it when he greets Judas, uh, Jesus with a kiss to signal to the officers to arrest him. And Jesus will say, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? With a kiss? In other words, Jesus will make a very personal remark to call attention to the very personal level of Judas's betrayal. And that brings us to the end of the road for Judas Iscariot, which is damnation. As Jesus told Judas, the Son of Man indeed goes. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for him if he had not been born. Damnation consignment to hell for eternity, which is what Jesus is talking about there. That's another thing we have trouble thinking about biblically. And we tend to be schizophrenic about it, too. On the one hand, all people, Christians and non-Christians alike, we like to believe that our choices are significant. We even like to say that choices have consequences. Because that's simply a way of saying that we're free. And everybody wants to be free. But on the other hand, we are averse to the idea of a final judgment, an ultimate reckoning of responsibility, 
And we are especially averse, or as evangelicals, embarrassed at the idea of hell. Here's the irony. It is hell that supports our freedom. It is the existence of hell, the reality of a final consequence for a lifetime of decisions, the reality that a person really can choose to be apart from God over a lifetime and have God honor it in eternity that gives each decision of our lifetimes consequence and therefore meaning. To say that there is no final reckoning of responsibility for a lifetime of decisions is to say that decisions do not matter. And if decisions do not matter, what has happened to our freedom? The ultimate futility is being able to decide anything and yet have nothing matter. That's like being imprisoned inside an endless maze. Endless choices and none of them matter. Better to have no choices at all than endless choices without significance or meaning. In conclusion, God's sovereignty and eternal judgment are not enemies of man's freedom and dignity. Without them, man has no freedom or dignity. So what do we do with these truths today? How do we apply them this week? I want to give you several things to think about. Number one, God's sovereignty is something to be embraced, not puzzled over. God's sovereignty is something to be embraced, not puzzled over. Do not think, as Paul quotes in Romans 3, how can I be condemned for who resists God's will? Paul says their condemnation is just. In other words, you don't understand anything about God's sovereignty if that's the way you think. Do not think when you're tempted that you're being tempted by God. God's sovereign, I'm being tempted, he must want me to sin. James tells us, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So God's sovereignty is, not so, is something to be embraced. Think about how you think of God's sovereignty when you claim his provinces. When you claim God's promises and hold them precious, now you understand God's sovereignty. Think about God's sovereignty when you pray to God, or how you think of it when you pray to God. God's sovereignty is precious to you when you're praying for him to save a loved one who's not a Christian. Right? You pray to a God who can change their heart, no matter what they think, no matter what they want. That's when you understand God's sovereignty. Number two, remember this. Those who believe God's sovereignty the most are the most energetic, active, and decisive Christians. Okay? Those who really get God's sovereignty do not become paralyzed 
as they spiral into depths of how can I do anything of God's sovereign and that, you know, that kind of thing. That's a person who doesn't get God's sovereignty at all. If you want to see uh, examples of those who really got God's sovereignty, the Bible's full of those examples. You can go to the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11 and see all kinds of people who understood that. David is a good one to look at. David is a really good one to look at. David gets God's sovereignty when he marches out to take on Goliath. David was a man of action. David was a man of song. He was a man of poetry. He was a very passionate man, active man, decisive man. David gets God's sovereignty when he writes in Psalm 18, By you, by, by you, God, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. God has also given me the shield of his salvation. And he says to God, your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. Number three, always remember that in every situation, you have a decision. In every situation, you have a decision. Honor God in whatever he sets before you. Honor God in whatever he sets before you. As it says in Proverbs 3, in every situation, trust the Lord with all your heart. In every situation, don't lean on your own understanding. In every situation, acknowledge God in all your ways and understand and trust that he will direct your paths. In every situation, don't be wise in your own eyes. In every situation, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In every situation, trust God's promise that this path of life will be health to you and strength to your bones. In every situation you face, you have a decision, so honor God in whatever he sets before you. Because once you have made your decision, you will not be the same person you were before you made it. Once you make your decision, you will not be the same person you were before you made it. You will either be a little closer to God, or maybe a lot closer to God. Are you going to be further from God? A little or a lot? You're going to be a little softer in your heart toward God, or you're going to be a little harder? Or maybe a lot, depending on the decision. But you're not going to be the same. Look at Judas. Every time he turns away, he's not quite the same person. He's harder. He's harder. He's harder. He's wise in his own eyes. He leans on his own understanding. He doesn't fear the Lord. He doesn't turn away from evil. He thinks he knows best. He thinks he knows more about his happiness than God does. And he's not the same person each time. So I commend these things to you. I commend to you the exhaustive sovereignty of God as a precious truth for you to cling to and for it to free you and to make you energetic and decisive, but all according to the will of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.